You're listening to our Ephesians devotional series. We are taking the book of Ephesians section by section and trying to find some of the important themes and important commands and important bits of theology that the Apostle Paul incorporates into this letter to the church at Ephesus. And uh, one of the things that we have been looking at is how the gospel, the gospel message of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ forms a new community, a community of Jews and Gentiles. Now, we have to remember that Paul is writing to an historical people. This is not just abstract philosophizing about different ideas of the spiritual world, but Paul is a pastor. He's a missionary. He's a church planter. He is somebody who feels a spiritual fatherhood over this young church movement. And so he's dealing with very practical issues with his theology. And one of the practical issues is this, how does the death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ not only shape our relationships with people from different ethnic groups in terms of Jews and Gentiles and who's saved, but how does it reshape the social structures of society? How does it reshape the relationship between husbands and wives and parents and children and slaves and masters? And these are the questions that he is directly dealing with. So in the last episode, we talked about how Jesus Christ reshapes our understanding or rather gives new life into the social structures of the world. So in marriage, the husband and wife relationship becomes a portrait of the relationship between Jesus Christ and the church. It's it's a relationship of authority and submission. That's one major aspect of the marriage relationship. But beyond that, there's a relationship of mutual submission within the church. So in general, Christians are to have a uh, an attitude of deference toward one another. It doesn't mean that we, we do everything that somebody tells us to do, but it doesn't mean there's a humble spirit that doesn't insist on our own way. So submission is part of what it means to be this new community formed in Christ. And it's what it means to be spirit-filled. Being spirit-filled is living out the Christian life in the ordinary spheres of creation, in your work, in your marriage, in your community, with your neighbors, with your vocation. All of these things are aspects of our lives. And there's no division between things that are quote-unquote spiritual and things that are quote-unquote non-spiritual. And that's why we have to talk about these social contexts and how they are transformed by the gospel. So we're going to look specifically at the relationship between children and their parents the relationship between fathers and their children, and the relationship between masters and bond servants. And we'll talk a little bit about how uh, each of these are seen in a new light, not erased, not done away with necessarily, but given a new vision of how they function. So let's look at the first one. We're going to look at children obeying their parents. This is verses one through four. And it also talks about fathers and their, and their children. This is the word of the Lord. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So the first command is to children, and the command is to honor and obey 
your parents. This is right. This is a good thing. And this is even part of God's 10 words, his 10 commandments that he gave to Moses. And the promise is this, to the children of Israel, if you obey your parents, you're going to live long in the land. Now we have to do some work to sort of translate this Old Testament command to the New Testament. A couple observations I want to make. First, Paul is addressing children directly, which means that they were probably in the congregation and that he expects children to have moral agency. In other words, they are expected to obey this command. So he's not waiting for them to become Christians to obey their parents. This is something that is given to a household. And if you look at the book of Acts in the beginning of the church, and especially all through Ephesians, households are central. They assume that whole households will become Christians. That doesn't mean that every one of your kids is guaranteed to be saved, but it is saying that God works through the normal, ordinary family dynamics, either for good or for ill. Now, the specific promise is to the families in Israel saying, God promises you're going to live long in the land. Remember, the land was the inheritance that God gave to the nation of Israel. And he said, basically, if you obey me, you're going to stay in the land. And this was a promise tied to that. But what's interesting is if you read in the Old Testament Psalm 95, right? It talks about a future rest that is yet to be had. Now, this is interesting because the Psalms are written by uh, Israelites, or I can't remember if it's actually King David in this exact instance, but it's written by Israel while they're in the land and they're waiting for another rest, which means that Israel occupying their physical land is not the final rest they're waiting for. And that's the argument of the book of Hebrews. So when we translate this in the Old Testament, God is telling The families of Israel, if your children obey you, they'll live long in this physical land. But in the New Testament, Paul takes that and applies it to the New Testament church. And the idea of the land is now expanded. It's now expanded. If you read in Romans 4, the land that Abraham was promised in Romans 4 is actually expanded to be the whole world. So I think all that to say is what we translate this to for children in the new covenant is this, that if they obey their parents and they grow up in the instruction of the Lord, and they believe the promises of the gospel given to them by their parents, they will inherit the new creation, the new heavens and new earth, the whole world. The very expanded promise that we see with Abraham. So if you want to think of it again, just to summarize it, the land, the physical land in the Old Testament is now expanded to the whole world in the New Testament. And that's what children of uh, believing parents are promised to receive if they believe the gospel. So God's natural order of the family is by design. This is how the promise gets transmitted. Not only that, but he also has exhortations to the parents, specifically to the fathers, because fathers are the head of the home. And we we see that in the prior verses, the husband is the head of the wife. He's the one who leads the wife. And you see that all throughout the pattern in, in Old Testament Israel. The fathers were sort of the representatives of the entire family. And if you know anything about the way that fathers affect people, I mean, if the, the presence or the absence of the, of the father is incredibly important, especially in spiritual instruction. And this is why Paul says, fathers, when you raise your children, don't provoke them to anger. Now, remember, when Paul makes a command, it's because he knows that people are going to be prone to do the opposite. When he says, don't provoke your children to anger, it's because he knows that fathers will have a tendency to do that. So he says, when you are 
leading your household, when you're raising your children, be gentle with them. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Teach them the word of God. Instruct them in the word of God. Teach them what it means to follow God. But don't don't aggravate them. Don't, Don't be filled with rage. Don't be filled with anger towards them. But be a person who can be gentle and humble and kind and tender so that when you bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, it can be more effective. And many of our issues with the authority of God, the authority of the church, the authority of the state, the authority of scripture comes from our relationship with our parents, specifically our fathers. And so fathers have an incredible role in imitating and demonstrating the very first authoritative, instructive role in a child's life. And that is so important that Paul goes, don't abuse that. Make sure that they see authority and firmness and even discipline as coming from a good place of love so that when children grow up and begin to believe the gospel for themselves, they have a healthy vision of God's fatherhood that comes from their earthly father. Now, we go on from that. So for this command, children, obey your parents. Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger, but teach them, right? Motivate them, show them what it means to live a godly life. And then he goes to bond servants and masters or slaves and masters. Now, this is very loaded language because when we think about slaves in the U.S., we think about chattel slavery, which was uh, when the there was the African slave trade, taking slaves, kidnapping them. Uh, from different African countries, bringing them to the United States to work as slaves. And they were essentially treated as property. And obviously that, that's a grievous sin. And oftentimes when people will point to this verse and say that the Bible promotes slavery. Um, now, we have to deal with these texts. We can't act like they're not there, nor should we be ashamed of them. We don't want to be ashamed of the word of God, but we do need to interpret them thoughtfully and properly. So a couple notes about this command. So first, it says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters. And you must obey them with fear and trembling. Now, a couple things to keep in mind. Slavery was widespread. Now, the kind of slavery here is a kind of indentured servitude. In other words, uh, many bond servants, and, and the reason that's used is because they were, they were paying off a debt by slavery. Uh, but there was usually a chance where they could get free. So there was opportunities for freedom. It wasn't racially based and they were given much more freedom than the African slave trade would have provided. They could actually build wealth. They could actually earn their freedom through different means. And they were people who uh, were essentially given some kind of pathway forward. Now, this doesn't mean that it was benign. This was a harsh system. Slaves could be mistreated, they were expected to be sexually available in many cases, and they were property. So how do we deal with this? How do we deal with this knowing that obviously slavery and owning another person is clearly sinful? Well, we have to remember, again, slavery was a widespread practice through all of human history. So this is some kind of new ideas. From the very beginning of time, people have been enslaving each other. And what God is doing is he is introducing regulations for a sinful system with the hopes that over time, the system itself will implode due to the change of the gospel in human hearts. Now, again, we want to keep in mind, this is different than the African slave trade because they were kidnapped. 
these Africans were kidnapped, which actually, in if you read the uh, in the first five books of the Bible, when you read the Law of Moses, kidnapping is a is a is an offense that can be handled by capital punishment. So the proper punishment for slave traders was execution for kidnapping, right? So that is clearly prohibited by the Bible. And also, we can't read modern. Uh, kind of racial ethics back into the Old Testament as cleanly as maybe we would like to. Again, these were not, the, the racial categories weren't really established back in Paul's day. So, so we have to be careful not to be anachronistic and read that back in. But God is giving regulations. God is giving, another example would be divorce. God is against divorce, but he still gives provisions for divorce to curb human evil. And I think he's doing the same thing in terms of slavery. He's against slavery. He's against this kind of indentured servitude, but he's providing mechanisms to sort of curtail and uh, help mitigate some of the negative consequences of an unjust system. So it's a very kind of nuanced way of thinking about it. So, but this is not a promotion of slavery. Rather, this is actually a gradual way of dismantling that system through the transformation of the hearts of the people within it. Um, now, we see this because he tells bond servants not to rebel, not to run away, but to obey with a sincere heart as you would Christ, right? Don't be a people pleaser, but do God's will from your heart and know that whatever good you do, you'll receive it back from the Lord, right? This is true whether you're bond servant or free. So the slave is called to love his neighbor as himself and to love his enemy. This is a radical call. He's not called to destroy his master, but rather to see that he is a greater master in heaven. Notice that he says, obey your earthly master, which assumes there's another master that he has his ultimate allegiance to. And I think there's a picture of Jesus Christ himself who comes to be a servant who, who took on the form of a slave. Right? He himself submitted himself to evil and he trusted the father with that. Now, in books like Philemon, Paul says, look, if you, if you have the ability to get free, go get free. Like, don't, don't, don't romanticize this system, but understand it, that you're trapped in this and you've got to pay off a debt. Man, honor the Lord in that. Honor the Lord in that situation, right? You are not owed perfection in this life, but you are called to obey Christ in whatever station you're in. I think a good example of this would be in employee situations. I think that's a little bit closer to what Paul's talking about than like, American slavery. Uh, and the idea is that if you're stuck in a job and man, your boss is tough and you don't like the job, it's not where you want to be. Well, you're not owed a dream job. And what you're called to do in that position is to honor your heavenly master, Jesus Christ, by honoring your earthly one. Doesn't mean you have to agree with everything they do. Doesn't mean you can't look for other jobs. Doesn't mean you can't take a better opportunity, but it does mean as long as you're stationed there, you are not to do things to people please. You're not to do things to uh, make yourself glorified, but rather you are to serve your master serve your employer and honor them as you honor Christ. And then there's the flip, masters, you should not be harsh with your bondservants. So bondservants obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with goodwill as to the Lord, not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is bondservant or free. Now. That's for bond servants. Now for masters, masters do the same to them and stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven 
and that there is no partiality with him. Very interesting. Masters, you have responsibility too. Do good to your servants. Don't threaten them. Understand that you too are accountable to Jesus Christ. So this is the great equalizer. The servant, his ultimate master is Jesus. But the master, his ultimate master is Jesus. And so if he wants to obey Jesus right, he's going to treat his servant well. And also that Jesus doesn't see slave or free. He just sees people. He shows no partiality with him. He sees sinners in need of grace. So that's, that's, the, that's the flattening act. That, that's what makes everything level at the foot of the cross. All the social statuses, all the, the ways that we try to create a hierarchy in the world are flattened before Jesus Christ. And here's the idea that hopefully over time, if masters view their bondservants as brothers, and bondservants view their masters as brothers, that that love and that bond will release the shackles of this system. And I think that that is a beautiful picture of how actual reconciliation between people happens by the blood of Christ, by this new reality created by the fact that we now share the same spirit and are united as one man in this new body. I think that's the only hope in the world. This is not a saying that fighting against injustice is wrong or that we should just stand around while people are being enslaved or that we should be inactive. Far from that. But it is to say that when we find ourselves in situations that we can't get out of, that doesn't mean that there isn't something the Lord wants us to do. That there is something he is doing that's subversive, that's, that's almost dangerous through us to release the shackles of this world and to be part of this new creation that's happening. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure you share it, leave a good review, and we'll be back to conclude our series in the book of Ephesians.